Matthew 16, verse 13 through verse 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Heavenly Father, we thank you, O Lord, uh, for uh, giving us this word and preserving it for us, Lord. We thank you that, Lord, you have loved us so much that you have revealed yourself to us in your word. And we do come to you this morning, Lord. Uh, we're mindful, Lord, that if we're going to learn and profit from uh, this verse, from this passage, it's like no other. We must have you to be our teacher and our guide. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would meet each of us, Lord, uh, exactly where we are, that, Lord, you would instruct us and you would lead us and you would guide us, O oh Lord. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. So we finished a few weeks ago, chapter 15, we, we saw a wonderful trinity of uh, what we call grace, uh, faith, and uh, compassion. And uh, if you recall last week, I introduced the sermon as a roller coaster. You know, we found ourselves way up here with that, that wonderful trinity of grace, faith, and compassion. You know, faith is a gift of God's grace, flows forth from the compassionate heart of God. And we're way up here. And we move from chapter 15 into chapter 16. And just like a roller coaster, we, we're met with another trinity, aren't we? Uh, a trinity that's a little bit different. A trinity that I called uh, really blindness, uh, dullness, and false teaching. Quite a contrast. And that's the way the scriptures are, isn't it? You can be reading along. You can find yourself in such heights. And then you can find yourself in such valleys. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, you know, in, in the beginning of chapter 16, they come to test Jesus. They're supposed to be leading the people of Israel uh, into the kingdom of God. And what are they doing instead? Uh, they're trying to destroy the Messiah. We see that they're completely blind. Why are they blind? They're blind because they want to be blind. They're, they're consistently refusing, consistently rejecting that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. Jesus uh, rebukes them and then warns them, uh, uh, or warns his disciples of them, rather, in verse 5. Uh, he makes the comment, he says, beware of the, watch and beware of the leaven of the, of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. And then we see the, the second aspect uh, of the text, which is the dullness. We see the blindness of the Pharisees and Sadducees first. Then we see the dullness of the disciples. They didn't know what Jesus was talking about. And Jesus uh, mildly rebukes them. He says, why are you so slow to perceive and 
so slow to understand. And, you know, before we get too tough on the disciples, let's, let's think of our own walk, you know. Uh, oftentimes, we are also very dull, aren't we? Slow to understand, slow to perceive. But that gives the, us the opportunity to see the great patience of our Lord, which is one of the applications we made last week. I'm so thankful that Jesus is so patient uh, with us. He is so ever patient. So we see blindness, we see dullness, and lastly, we see false teaching. Uh, eventually, the disciples understand that what Jesus is talking about is the false teaching. Uh, these religious leaders were supposed to be uh, leading people into the kingdom of God, but instead, uh, they're rejecting Jesus. They're teaching things that are false, and Jesus warns every generation uh, through this text that these guys will be out there, and we need to take warning against them. How do we discern uh, a true teacher uh, from a false teacher? How do we evaluate teaching? Uh, we do so with the Word of God. We do so by the Word of God. And we see uh, that really popularity is, a, is really not a very reliable credential here. Many of the most popular teachers, pastors, uh, biblical authors, uh, or not biblical authors, but writers, people who write in the Christian arena, uh, teach things that clearly are not true. They're not in accordance with the Scriptures. So we need to evaluate everything that we hear, everything that we read uh, with the Scriptures themselves. And this brings us to verse 13. Uh, it brings us uh, to the next pericope, if you will, the next uh, passage. And here, the outline this morning is going to be quite simple. We see two things here. The title of the message is a confession and a promise. And that's what we see here. And we'll take each of these uh, in their respective order. We're going to see a great confession and we're going to see a great promise. Um, Jesus and his disciples, they make their way up to Caesarea Philippi which is about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. And interestingly enough, this is about as far north as uh, Jesus will go during His earthly ministry, up into largely Gentile uh, regions, if you will, a Gentile area. And it is here where Jesus asks a couple of probing questions. In verse 13, He asks His disciples quite plainly, He says, what's everybody, what's everybody saying about me? What, who, who do they say I am? And the disciples, they, they answer, well, you know, Lord, some people are saying you're John the Baptist. Some people are saying you're Elijah. Some people say you're Jeremiah. Uh, some people just say you're one of the other prophets. Now, we might pause there for a second and think, well, how do they come up with all that? You know, let's, let's take briefly take each one at a time. Why would they say that Jesus is John the Baptist? Well, we have to remember that this is before YouTube, you know, you couldn't just click on the link, you know, and check out John the Baptist for yourself. There was life before YouTube. <laughs> you can't just click on the link and, and get a snapshot of uh, John the Baptist. In fact, this is before mass media of any kind. You know, if we lived in that day, we probably wouldn't know what John the Baptist looked like or what he sounded like. What we would know is that God has been prophetically silent for over 400 years. And we've heard stories that there is a prophet who has come into, uh, the, the, into the arena, if you will, uh, and he's preaching and people are saying he's a prophet. And perhaps along comes Jesus. 
And we've only heard of John the Baptist. And here comes Jesus, and he's speaking with such authority. He's performing miracles. He's doing all these things. It'd be pretty easy to confuse the two, wouldn't it? We don't, after all, we don't know what John the Baptist looks like anymore, and we know what Jesus looks like. So we could see the confusion there. Secondly, uh, Elijah. Why would we confuse Jesus with Elijah? Well, uh, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, in the last few verses of the Old Testament, there's a promise. God promises that before the day of the Lord comes, He will send His prophet Elijah. He will return. Now, God's been silent for over 400 years. That's one of the last prophetic utterances that, that we've been given. Now, we would be waiting. There would be some anticipation. Okay, when is Elijah going to come? When is Elijah going to come? Here comes Jesus. He's performing all these miracles. He's doing all these things. He's teaching things that are extraordinary. Yeah, it'd be pretty easy to come to the conclusion, perhaps this is Elijah. What about Jeremiah? Well, there is no Old Testament promise that uh, Jeremiah will return before the Messiah, but there was a Jewish tradition. According to Jewish tradition, Jeremiah uh, would return uh, at the time of the Messiah. So there was, some, there, there, there was some speculation that Jesus was perhaps Jeremiah uh, returned. But I think what's most interesting is the very last category where others were saying, well, he's maybe one of the other prophets. And the reason I think that one is so interesting is because that perspective is still very much alive today, isn't it? But Jesus is not the divine Messiah. He's one of the prophets. There are millions of people today who believe that very thing about Jesus. Jesus is not the Son of God. He's not the divine Messiah, but He's a great prophet. And there's actually a little bit of a problem with uh, that particular perspective. If Jesus is just a prophet, if He is not the divine Messiah, then He's not a great prophet either. Because Jesus claimed to be God over and over again. And we wouldn't think of a prophet who claimed to be God as a great prophet. And even if we were to say uh, Jesus was, you know, He wasn't God, but He was a great teacher. We couldn't say He was a great teacher if He wasn't God because He clearly taught. He went around forgiving sins. That's something only God could do. He says to the Pharisees that before Abraham was, I am. He's clearly making statements that he could only make if he was God in the flesh. So if he is not God in the flesh, he cannot be a great prophet, nor a great teacher. He would be a false prophet. He would be a false teacher. Jesus asks the disciples this probing question. Who do people say that I am? He's leading up to another question, isn't he? What's the next question? Okay, we've heard what everyone else is saying. Okay, fellas, what are you saying? Who do you say that I am? And then Peter, he speaks, not only on behalf of himself, but he speaks for the group in verse 16. He replies, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have Peter's great confession. Notice how Jesus responds in verse 17. He says, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What does this teach us? 
If you're sitting here this morning and you believe that Jesus is the divine Messiah, that you didn't come up with that on your own any more than Peter came up with that on his own. Peter didn't put this together by himself. Jesus is making that very clear. He could have said, blessed are your eyes for they see. Blessed are your ears for they hear. God had opened the eyes of Peter to see the real Jesus. He'd opened up the ears of Peter to hear the real Jesus, to see Jesus as he really is. And if you have true saving faith this morning, God has done that for you too. Isn't that quite amazing? Now what we learn from all of this is that it's not only possible to believe in a Jesus who is not the Jesus of the New Testament or the Jesus of the Gospels. It's not only possible to do this, it's actually very common to do this. So the text really warns us, doesn't it? Is the Jesus that we're worshiping, the Jesus that we're believing in, is he the Jesus of the New Testament? Is he the divine Messiah who's seated at the right hand of God the Father in glory? Is he he? That's the question we need to ask ourselves and to evaluate. We have a great confession. We also have a great promise. Uh, the text that we're about to look to, verse 18, is probably one of the most controversial texts in the New Testament. If, it may not be the most controversial, but it's up there. It's definitely up there, and I see a couple of smiles already out there. You know, okay. Uh, Matthew 16, 18. Uh, notice what Jesus says next. He says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, here's where the controversy rests, most of it. It's in the identity of the rock. Who or what is the rock? Peter is promising, or Jesus is promising Peter that he's going to build his church upon this rock. Who is the rock? What is the rock? Now, there's a couple of very common uh, interpretations or views of this verse. The first one is that the rock is Peter. And this is the uh, interpretation of the Roman Catholic Church, that the rock is Peter. Our Catholic friends will point at this and they'll say, oh, the uh, the rock is Peter, and this is one of the, uh, the uh, classic texts that the Church of Rome would use to uh, defend uh, the papacy, uh, the office of the Pope, uh, that the Pope himself is a successor of Peter. Now, I remember in being in seminary, uh, in, actually in a Greek class, and uh, my professor, some of you have met, Dr. Jonathan Watt, uh, I used to affectionately tease him. I used to say that Dr. Watt knows everything. All you have to do is ask him and he'll tell you he knows everything. We used to tease him because the man was so knowledgeable. But one day we were in class and uh, we, were, we were, I can't remember exactly what we were studying, but this passage came up and someone, uh, someone come right on and asked Dr. Watt uh, what, what he believed Matthew 16, 18 was teaching. And Dr. Watt said, well, I, I'll tell you, you know, um, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to excite anybody here, but I believe that it's clearly teaching that the rock is Peter. And that was the first time that I had actually heard that. I actually had really uh, believed a second interpretation I'm going to give you in a couple of minutes. And I, I, my, my ears were, I, I was on the edge of my seat here now to hear what Dr. Watt was going to say next. He'd say, I clearly believe that, that 
Jesus is speaking to Peter, and it is upon Peter. Peter is the rock in this verse. Now that having been said, Dr. Watt doesn't believe that this passage teaches any kind of succession of Peter, that, uh, that this text could properly be used to develop uh, the papacy or to defend the office of the pope. And uh, quite frankly, there are a number of very fine Protestant evangelical scholars that believe that this particular verse, the rock of this verse, uh, is indeed Peter. D.A. Carson, for instance, is one. William Hendrickson is another. Uh, that, that's one view. Uh, the view that I held when I went to seminary was probably the most popular Protestant view on this, is that the rock is the confession that Peter has just made, where Jesus is basically saying, okay, uh, he, he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I tell you, you are Peter uh, on this confession. I will build my church. And you can see there's a, there's a, I think there's a lot of merit to that. Upon this confession, I will build uh, my church. Uh, we think about it. How, how, are you, uh, how are you brought into the church? Uh, you, you know, we, we gain communicant membership in the church by way of our profession of Christ. So it's, it's by confessing that Jesus indeed is the divine Messiah, which Peter has just done. Uh, that, that's one common Protestant view of this particular text. Uh, there's a third view that's not, it's probably more of a minority view, but it teaches that the rock is Christ. That what Peter, or what Jesus is saying to Peter is that upon this rock, that is upon myself, uh, that which the confession uh, points to, upon uh, myself, uh, I, will, uh, I will build my church. And our call to worship this morning from 1 Corinthians 10 uh, verses 1 through 4, Jesus is called the rock in that passage, isn't he? He's called a rock. So we see there, there's strengths, actually, to all three of these views. Uh, it, something I want to make really clear here, I want everybody to understand there's, there's several different views to this. But what I want to make really clear here, and what often happens with this verse, is we get so caught up in trying to identify the rock, who or what is the rock, that we lose track of the blessing. We lose track of the promise. Whatever of these three views we take, we should all rejoice in the fact that Jesus is here making a great promise. Peter's made a great confession. Jesus is making a great promise. What is that promise? Jesus is promising to build his church. And the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In other words, Satan with all his honorage will not prevail against it. He may strike it. He may, uh, he may frustrate it. Uh, he may make it rough, but he will not prevail against it. Not even death itself will prevail against it. And if God has given you eyes that see and ears that hear, if he's given you true saving faith this morning, guess what? You are a living installment in that promise. Christ has promised to build his church. And how, how does that happen? It happens as Jesus goes and gathers each one of us and gives us the faith to see him for who he really is. And, and by, by way of that, bringing us into uh, his church. There's still one other verse that we need to work out here, verse 19. It's, it's a tough little verse. He's, he's still speaking here. 
Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. It's a tough little verse, isn't it? What does this mean? Does this mean that uh, Jesus has given Peter the ability to uh, uh, let in who he wants into, into heaven or to deny who he wants into heaven? I mean, all of us have heard, you know, the, the jokes that go around, you know, such and such passed away and he went to the gates and there Peter was. We've heard that. Uh, that's where this comes from. Is that really what's happening? Is it really like that? Does Peter have the ability to admit who he wants or to, uh, uh, to uh, 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 turn away whoever he wants? Does he have that kind of power? No. We have to say emphatically no to that. That belongs only to God himself, doesn't it? No man writes names in the book of life. Boy, I, I'll tell you, quite frankly, I am so glad that pastors and priests and church leaders do not have that kind of authority. I would not want anything to do with that. Oh, I, I'd love to be able to admit everybody in. I wish we could do that and just get this over with. I can't do that. But boy, could you imagine having the authority to disqualify somebody from him? from heaven. I, I couldn't bear that. And when I hear people talk and associate this kind of thing to men, I shudder. What does this mean? What is Jesus pointing to here? The key to understanding that, I'm convinced, is found in Luke chapter 11, and especially in verse 52 of Luke 11. In that passage, in Luke 11, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and other religious leaders. He's harshly rebuking them. And one of the things that he says in the course of this rebuke is he says, listen, you fellas, you have no interest in coming into the kingdom of God yourselves, and you hinder those who would come in otherwise. And one of the things he says is that you take away the key. You take away the key. What is the key? Well, what Jesus is rebuking those leaders for is their particular interpretation of Scripture and their denial that Jesus is the Messiah. That message right there will not permit anyone to enter the kingdom of heaven. If you believe that message, you're never going to come into the kingdom of heaven. That will keep you out of the kingdom of heaven. That shuts it up. That closes it off. Well, what opens it? It's the gospel that opens it. Peter, as he, as he preaches the confession that he has made, that Jesus is the divine Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah who was promised in the Old Testament. He has arrived and that forgiveness of sins can be found in Him. Look, He went to the cross. That's what we're going to be looking at next is the cross. Next week we're going to be looking right directly at the cross. In other words, it's the gospel. As the gospel is preached and shared, heaven is opened and heaven is closed. It's not the preacher who opens and closes it, not specifically, I mean, inadvertently. Uh, if, if one of us goes somewhere and preaches the gospel someplace, 
and two or three people are suddenly believe that Jesus is the Messiah, heaven has been opened for them. Well, we could say in, in a sense, in this limited sense, that the preacher did open up heaven for them because he shared the gospel. But behind that preacher is the will of God. It is God who, who opens and God who closes. But can you see the relationship here? And I think when we look at it that way and we read this verse again, I think it makes perfect sense. Jesus says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom. What are the keys? The gospel. I'm going to give you the gospel message. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. In other words, as we go around and we share the gospel at the water cooler at work, at the coffee pot, or wherever, the Lord would open up the doors. As people believe, God is opening up the heavens for people to believe. And as people reject that message, the doors are being shut. We ultimately don't know who's going to come to believe. We could, we could share our lives with people, and we will do this, constantly talking to people, trying to urge them to come to Christ. And they can reject us. For all we know, they can reject us for the rest of our lives. But we do not know what goes on in their hearts between themselves and Almighty God as the end comes. We do not know that, do we? Charles Spurgeon used to say that when we get to heaven, we're going to, there's going to be two surprises. We're going to be surprised, one, by who we see. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised to see me. Go, what in the world are you doing here? <laughs> I know, I know. I never thought I could get here either. But we're going to be surprised by who we don't see as well. Men don't have that. We don't have that kind of power. Men shouldn't want that kind of power. So in putting all this together, what do we have here? We have a great confession, don't we? We have a great promise. The confession is all of grace. If you're confessing that Jesus is the Messiah this morning, God has touched your heart, He's given you that grace. The promise is all of grace too. No matter what it might look like, no matter how bad it might seem the church is going, Christ has promised to build it. Hasn't He? That promise is for sure. Our future is certain. And that's grace, isn't it? Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We praise you for this great salvation that we have, O oh Lord. We thank you and praise you, O oh Lord, for the promise, for the confession that we have, O oh Lord. For if we're confessing, O oh Lord, that you are the Lord and Savior, the divine Messiah, we know, O oh Lord, it's only because you've touched our hearts because you're building your church and that we are an installment in the construction of this church. We thank you, O Lord, that this, is the, that this is the case. O Lord, we praise you and thank you for the future that we have in Christ Jesus. And everyone said, Amen.